You are now listening to the Griot's Black Podcast Network, Black Culture Amplified. What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Dear Culture, the podcast for, by, and about the culture. I'm your host, Panama Jackson, and we have two very special guests today who are going to be merging journalism and academia and talking about one of the wildest decades of Black human existence, especially well, that's probably not true. There's a bunch of decades in the 17 and 1800s. And the point is, for hip-hop purposes, we're going to talk about one of the wildest decades, and that's going to be the 80s. So I'm joined today by my colleague here at the Grio Black Podcast Network at the Grio, veteran music journalist, a name that you know from Twitter, from all of the amazing interviews he's done, from the articles he's written. He is a, a I'm going to go ahead and give you these flowers, a legend in the hip-hop journalism game, Touré. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. And we are joined by a professor at Amherst College who teaches a class called Rap Reagan and the 1980s, Professor Stephen Bradley, who is here to discuss how we merge academia and hip hop and politics and all that. So we have two people literally who are at the crux of this and who have been spending their careers doing the very thing that this class does. Um, so put your virtual hands together for my guest today, Tore and Professor Stephen Bradley. For one, thank you both for joining me here today uh, on Dear Culture. I'm a hip hop head. 2023 celebrates 50 years of hip hop. You know, we're all year. I mean, everybody who cares even a little bit about hip hop culture is going to be talking about the 50. The Grammys happened and there was a big 50 year mm. tribute produced by Questlove, who you know, there's been some criticism of that, but I mean, LL said up front, we can't include everybody, right? But, no. you know, Tore, you have a podcast that you're going to be doing here at the Grio Black Podcast Network called Being Black in the 80s, which focuses on songs that were important to, I believe, I'll make sure that I'm getting this right, songs that help kind of frame the way we look at the 80s or take things that were happening in the 80s and lend music and voice to them artistically. Stefan, you have a class that's about rap Reagan in the 1980s. So I'm going to ask you both. We're going to start here. Why the 1980s? Stefan, let's start with you. Well, uh, first of all, thank you for having me on this show. Look, I, I, I don't finally made it big time. I'm on here with Toure and, and Panama <laughs> Jackson. Look here. Look, you let the little people come on. That's why I, I love you all. That's important. Don't forget your roots uh, is what they say. So <laughs> thank you for letting me be on the podcast. But when we talk about the 1980s, I, I think there's no way to understand this this contemporary moment without understanding the 1980s. Like I think uh, the political scene uh, set the stage for for Make America Great Again. Uh, I think in terms of the economy, this deregulation moment. Uh, was the reason why there's so many, you know, uh, economic issues today uh, when we're talking about the the way that corporations are ready to operate. When we talk about policing, uh, the 1980s was was kind of the blueprint for for the way that people would be policed later on and and the militarization of police. But then I think culturally too, uh, there was a lot going on. Uh, so you're you're talking about. Um, uh, a group of people who had to who, who had to create culturally in part because of circumstances and as black people do uh they set they set a trend and and nobody thought what black people were creating at that moment would last 
So the 1980s to me explains so much about the contemporary moment. And, and the students that I have were were not born in the 1980s. So the 1980s mm. be the 1880s. So, oh. <laughs> so, so trying to explain it all to them is vitally important because they don't understand that that you know their grandpa or their 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 daddy or their uncle or, or grandma or whatever uh, was dealing with you know uh, the Reagan 80s and what that meant in terms of immigration and and wow. drug infestations and 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 viral diseases. He's a grandfather. Wow. Okay. Great. Thanks for that, brother. Yeah. Appreciate you. Um, no, but um, I think there's three important, at least three important things that happened in the 80s. Hip hop moves from a strictly New York underground subculture to a recorded national phenomenon. And we saw it developing of like, oh, we have to go to like a small record store to get the latest tape to this continued sort of just skyrocketing up of more MCs, more creativity, a bigger place in the culture. So, I mean, it was it was incredibly exciting to see it move from this tiny thing to this, you know, national thing that was super important. But at the same time, we get the declaration of the war on drugs and then the crack epidemic after the declaration of the war on drugs. Tonight, I can report to you that we've made much progress. 37 federal agencies are working together in a vigorous national effort. And by next year, our spending for drug law enforcement will have more than tripled from its 1981 levels. And I'm glad that the professor's course puts Reagan so central because Ronald Reagan is one of the critical anti-fathers of hip hop, who his, what he does helps create the conditions for hip hop that we are responding against. Um, so the crack epidemic, you, you cannot overstate the massive impact that this had on black America in terms of health, family disruption, economics. And it also leads to the third major thing, which is the, the drastic rise in sentences, right? Before, largely stemming from the death of Len Bias, uh, if memory serves, that was 1986. And what you started to see was what we call basketball sentences where people were getting uh, prison sentences as long as basketball scores. And so before that, you might get arrested for something and get a five or 10 year sentence. And people were like, I can do that. I can, I can live with that and come home and continue to have a life. So I'm not going to destroy other people's lives to get myself out of this. And there was a culture of like, you know, don't say anything. If you did the crime, take it and move on. When people start getting 40, 50, 60, 70 year sentences dangled in front of them, they start to be like, yo, he did this, he did that, look at him, which then starts to get some of them out of trouble, but it breaks down bonds in the black community. I can't trust anybody I haven't known for 20 years. I can't talk about, because m almost everybody is being touched by the criminal justice system in some way. So you don't know who you're talking to, yo, we took down that thing the other day. Yo, dude over here needs to keep telling the cops about stuff that he knows. So he's gonna tell them what you said and then they pick you up. So now I can't trust anybody I haven't known forever. So now how do we create bonds with each other when we can't trust anybody? So that sort of starts to break down the bonds within the black community. 
Um, so all those three things have massive decades-long impacts on the Black community. Time for a quick break. We'll be right back. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny because the 80s is also... The so I live in Washington, D.C., home of Rayful Edmonds, one of the, you know, crack kingpins of all time, but also considered one of the greatest snitches of all time who speaks directly to what you're talking about, Teray. Like, you know, they built these empires and then it also came crumbling down and... You know, they took as many people, he took as many people out with him as possible, depending on who you ask. Um, you know, you said something really interesting, Stefan, about like your class. So nobody, nobody who's taking your class now was born in the 80s, right? Like I, I was born in 79. So my relationship with the 80s is, you know, like, I, you know, I, the 90s is really the era that I remember most when in terms of my own foundational growing. So what's it like? To, so first off, tell us about this class that you teach and what the reception is like to these people, to, to these students who effectively have no real understanding. And you're at Amherst, so I'm wondering, like, what's the makeup of this class? And, like, how do these people, how do the students, like, respond to the music you're talking about, the the era in general, and even Reagan as a whole? It's a lot going on, and I appreciate uh, Trey for talking about those wide receiver numbers. That's what we used to call them, wide receiver numbers. That mm. And, um... You know, in the expanse of crack, like so important, uh, and I hope we talk about that a little bit later. But in the class itself, uh, even at Amherst College, there was there was I don't know it was about fifty percent black students, uh, and then you know white students made up the uh, white students and others made up the other part of the class. Um, it was a very popular course over you know over enrolled. Uh, you know, one of the things that I tried to do is I tried to trick them. Uh, you know, when 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 they came to class. I know they all assumed that we were going to be, uh, you know, uh, doing the Migos and and uh, and whipping up, whipping up. Uh, but um, what I tried to do is try to hit them with with some economic theories too. Uh, tried to try to hit them with trickle down effect. Tried to hit them with uh, with the with the Laffer curve. All of these kinds of things that were were unique and and and, and important and significant in the Reagan. Uh, administration were uh, the the types of things that we were able to go over, but we were also able to go over things that that they should know. Like so, these I, I assume these are going to be the leaders of America and the world. That then then they should know about the Iran Contra affair and what kind of effect that would have on uh, the United States in terms of weaponry, in terms of of the entrance of drugs, in terms of uh, the policing of of black and brown people. So so in the class itself. Uh, they got a chance to go over lyrics, uh, so it's wild to watch uh, to watch these these upper middle class and elite class uh, students uh, go over uh, two shorts the ghetto uh, lyrics and 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 you know and go line by line through the message. Housing authority and the OPD, all these guns just to handle me and the ghetto. I love it. I love to watch it happen. Uh, they. They they crack up at, at the cadence of rap in the 1980s in contrast to to, to right now. Uh, but what they end up doing is learning to appreciate just how cold and how how fresh rap was uh, uh, during that period uh, and how one diverse thing, it was. Yeah. One thing that the professor reminds me also is the class element of the black community that in the 80s the black middle class expands uh, oh. immensely. Right. And we start to hear the term buppies. Yuppies was a term for young urban professionals that was 
white people, especially young white men who had a lot of disposable income. So they're driving Mercedes and Benzes. They have, you know, the latest technology in their cars and what have you. And they have money to spend and a lot of marketing dollars are going toward them. Um, but you start to see buffies, black urban professionals um, who have some of that uh, cash, uh, spendable cash, are getting into the law, medicine, uh, academia, you know, rising on up. So the promise of, let's say, the Jeffersons is being answered by the Cosbys, and more people are getting closer to what the Cosbys were. So we didn't always see the, I mean, we saw the Cosbys as aspirational and talk about the Huxtable family, but more and more it was like, why I know a couple of people who are kind of like that. He's an architect, you know, she's a doctor. So we are sort of rising to that. Some of us are hitting that level. Um, but at the same time, also maybe think about the Air Jordan, which yes. comes out in the 80s, becomes, I mean, it's hard to remember at the beginning of the 80s, the sneaker culture as we have it now did not exist at all, right? There was There was no competition for sneakers most people just wore white sneakers it was not a big deal and the jordan is one of the sneakers that one of the shoes that transforms this landscape into something that people had to have that people would shoot or kill people over that would you know i would work a second job uh, as a teenager or what have you so i could afford the latest jordans creating the craze to get the next one. I got to get the four, got to get the five, the six, whatever. So that, you know, that, that hero worship around Michael Jordan and the commodification of it by Nike is, is really important and not something we had ever seen before. Dr. J did not have that cult around him. Not with sneakers, not at all. Like, yeah. um, you know, and sneakers were utilitarian up until that point, uh, yeah. you know, so you had a certain crowd, uh, you know, that would rock the Adidas without the laces in them, right? Uh, you, would, sure. you would have a crowd to do that, but sneakers weren't what they are now. And then, you know, to speak to somebody like Jordan or the Cosbys, this idea that this, this was a generation who got a chance to benefit from affirmative action. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, that's a policy decision that worked to help create a larger black middle class that that Tere was talking about and uh and that's important but when we talk about jordan I, you have to you have to remake the conversation you have to create new things for the conversation because here was a black man who had the opportunity to transcend blackness in a way that is the the, the kids all over the world were talking about i want to be like this you know this what uh six foot six like uh dark skin bald <laughs> black man like come on now nobody that's not a thing that's not a thing that ever happened before and uh and so that that to me is is part of the hyper capitalism of the 1980s like and that involves so many different things that hyper I mean, and affirmative action was so critical in reshaping the opportunities that a lot of black and brown people had this notion that you should have some level of diversity in your high school, your college, your business. Um, but one of the things that I discovered in doing the research for my upcoming show, Being Black in the 80s, uh, Jelani Cobb came in and he's a genius. And he talked about how affirmative action put a lot of us in white spaces that many of us had not been in before, at least not in those sort of numbers. 
And that leads to the rise in Afrocentrism, because a lot of people are saying we and, and, and diasporic thinking. Right. So, so we need a counterbalance. Now I'm in this law school, this medical school, this Fortune 500 company surrounded by white people. I need a counterbalance in my life. And a lot of people found that in looking at the world in a more diasporic way and saying my, you know, Africans are my brothers and sisters. And like in the 60s, in the late 60s, to be called an African was an insult to a lot of African-Americans, right? African-American, the term does not start until the 80s, right? Afro-American rises up, I think, in the 70s. You might start to hear it in the 60s a little bit, but African-American is an 80s term where we were like, yes, they are our brothers and sisters. And Nelson Mandela's struggle and Stephen Biko's struggle is our struggle. And that thinking is critical to just creating a global mindset among a lot of black people. The struggle is not just here. It is all over the world. Yeah, no, I think that's that's the way to think about it. You know, the other thing to think about is, is uh, and I would never, never, never quibble with uh, Jelani Cobb, uh, Big Brother and the Pratt Brother. I would never do that. But I would also say, like, but, he's <laughs> but I'm going <laughs> to. But, <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, and Jelani Cobb is big, too, by the way. I don't know if you all know that, but he he's, like, broad-shouldered uh, and big. But he's a, he's a gentle giant. Of course, and 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 he loves us all. Uh, I used to see him down in Ferguson and everything else. Uh, he did excellent work down there. So, um, but I was gonna say that we have to remember that uh, these people in the 1980s who were enjoying hip hop and creating hip hop were were the actual sons and daughters of of Panthers, of people from yep. the Revolutionary Action Movement, of you know, sure. so people who were in the movement. And so by the end of the 1960s, you have this push towards what they call cultural nationalism. Uh, and so that allows for the X-Clan to come through. That allows for stetsasonic that they do lay. Uh, and so those kinds of things are, are important holdovers from the 1960s and 70s that, that, that meet up in the 1980s uh, to, to, you know, to, to mix in with what you were talking about. Before. I mean, those of us who are old enough to remember 80s music, the folks you talked about, Four Righteous Teachers, uh, the early Paris One and, and Boogie Down Productions music, Public Enemy, uh, you know, you mentioned X-Clan and some others, uh, Paris. Oh, yeah. We saw a, a political spine within hip hop and not everybody was doing this, but there were a lot of people where if you listen to hip hop, it was kind of like being in a an African-American studies Come class. On. You Come got on. that pride. You got that knowledge. Look. Farrakhan, whatever you want to say about him, was basically banned from television in the 80s. And as a younger person, the first time I heard his name was in a public enemy record, which made me go, who is this person that Chuck is talking about? Let me research this. You know, Franz Fanon is referenced in a record. Let me see what this is about. So this is point modern hip hop. And I don't want to be on like, you know, oh, back in the day, but like modern hip hop does not generally have that political spine that we were used to in the 80s and some of us are sort of disappointed that we and others are not able to get that from the music anymore we're gonna take a real quick break and when we come back we're gonna continue this conversation about the hip-hop of the 80s specifically because that's exactly where i wanted to go so hold on one second here stay tuned right here on dear culture
The Griot Black Podcast Network is here. Everything you've been waiting for. Black culture amplified. Find your voice on the Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Griot mobile app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard. All right, what's going on, everybody? We're still here on Dear Culture talking about the 80s with Professor Stephen Bradley from Amherst College and Teray. And, you know, when we left off, you all were basically talking about how the hip hop of the 80s as effectively was, as you said, Teray, like a course in, in Black studies. And it is interesting because when I think of hip hop from the from the 80s, I do think of all the political stuff, right? I do think of the ex-clans, the public enemies, of course. I remember the trouble that LL Cool J got in when he decided to go with the I need love route. You know, there's all these discussions about how Everything was turning political. The medallions were everywhere, the, the African medallions. And then, you know, so anybody who wasn't taking an opportunity to speak to the condition of Blackness, the Black CNN, as, as Chuck D so famously put it, you know, wasn't really welcomed at that time. But, you know, when you when you taught this class, Professor Brett, like, how do you, what songs were you focusing in on to help these students understand the 80s and the political nature of hip hop in the 80s? Um, like, where were you going with that? And Teray, I want you to, to, to hop in. I know you will, like, hop in with even some of the songs that you're talking about in your podcast, because if I'm not mistaken, I hope I'm just ain't letting a cat out the bag, but I, like, when I think of songs, I think of, like, De La Soul, like, My Brother's a Bass Head, right? Like, and I think that's a song that you might be looking at, uh, because it kind of speaks to, you know, that's kind of vulnerably putting your family out there, but it's also a reality for a lot of people's families you know, like no black, I don't know if any black family was immune to crack or, somebody, uh, you know, it, you know, especially in the inner cities. One I mean, you know, my family's. Yeah. So, 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 you know, go, what what songs are you talking about in yeah. class that, that, you know, are, are essential to this discussion? Yeah. Well, I mean, before I let off into that, like, I just, I just want to touch on the last point that you made that, Look, you all are big city boys. Like you come from, you know, you come from 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 major U.S. cities. I come from Yakima, Washington. Let me tell you something that crack had, a, you know, crack had come to Yakima, Washington. Uh, it was a place, you know, an agricultural space where uh, crime families from below the southern border uh, would bring, you know, cocaine and crack up into uh, up into my area. And because of that, national news came to my little town, to my little wow. city. And so this is important to understand that like crack wasn't just for New York or, or Los Angeles, like it, it, it was affecting people all over the United States. Uh, and, and, and when you talked about no black family went unscathed, I, I believe that to be true. Uh, I believe that to be true for those who were benefiting from affirmative action. They always had a family member that was affected by crack, but also affected by some of these other things that these songs that I uh, teach about uh, deal with. So, so uh, of course we do, uh, songs like 911 is a joke. So get up, get, get, get down. 911 is joking, uh, Which is talking about the inefficiency of civil services in black neighborhoods. Uh, we uh, we talk about how uh, uh, it's like that. We do run the MCs, it's like that. Uh, and we talk about uh, the ineffectiveness of some schools, the defunding of education. Everybody's scared to defund the police, but they defunded. Uh, education. There was federal defunding of education in the 1980s. We talk about Stetsasonic's Africa uh, and linking uh, the struggle here in the United States to the decolonization efforts and the push against apartheid Southern Africa over there, you know, Botswana and, 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 and everywhere down there. 
uh, South Africa and, and uh, Mozambique, all those places. We talk about those, but we also, this is important, like one of the things that you said was, was that some people would be ostracized for not talking about the movement. To, to an extent, yes, but one of the things that we really try to dig into in the class is just the diversity of music that made it to the mainstream, uh, that made it to the mainstream. So, so when you talk like that, I think about uh, the song Jimmy, uh, the, the BDP song, uh, Jimmy, uh, where they're talking about uh, the use of prophylactics because of this AIDS epidemic that was affecting uh, the black communities in, in, in such a major way. So, yeah. One of the things that hip hop does is it doesn't necessarily give you a whole song about something, but it will make a reference to it. And like the notion of you have to wear a condom yeah. was rampant in 80s conversation now much of it was wrapped up in a misogyny of like we can't trust these hoes yeah there right? was all of that so it was so it was problematic but it was also rock and roll was not constantly telling its listeners wear a condom the Don't. aids is out there hip-hop is constantly saying that um it, yeah so the, the crack epidemic is a massive impact on black people in the 80s in uh being black in the 80s we really fixate on different songs and different messages, right? But two of the things we talk about, My Brother's a Basshead by De La Soul, which is a 1991 song, but it speaks to the experience of the 80s and Night of the Living Basheads, uh, Public Enemy. And Night of the Living Basheads talks about uh, the experience of being a drug addict and the problems in the community that comes from that. My Brother's a Basshead is for the most part, as close as hip hop gets to like that sort of touching ballad that breaks your heart sort of thing, but it's like upbeat and funny because it's De La Soul, but he's telling the real story of my Pastanus, my older brother got into crack and he's spiraled out of control. And like we talked to Prince Paul, De La Soul's producer, generally considered the fourth member of the group, who was like, it's a totally real song. His brother was really going through it. He, pretty much everything in the song is accurate to their real life, what he was dealing with with his brother. And, um, you know, it's just, it's really powerful uh, to hear that. But I mean, in the 80s, hip hop felt so young and new that like almost everything was revolutionary. De La Soul and A Tribe Called Quest were not usually making overt political statements, but saying, Afrocentrism, suburbanism, you know, not being an inner city black person. These, this is a relevant thing that felt, you know, revolutionary and political in a personal sense, right? Like everybody who was doing something seemed political in some way. And the apolitical nature of the modern, most modern uh, hip hop, I think disappoints some of us who grew up feeling used to that. Like, this is what hip-hop is about. Hip-hop is partly about a critique of America and a discussion of the ways uh, of oppression in America. For all the criticism that a lot of white people had of N.W.A., their song, The Police, is a great early conversation about police brutality um, that presages BLM by several years. Uh, you know, and like, you know, we're like, where are those records now? I mean, you would have the George Floyd moment really radicalized a lot of us or woke a lot of us up. I thought 
I was unapologetically black. And just being in the space of 2020 and seeing what some millennials were doing, I was like, yo, I could be more. And I was inspired by the millennials around me. Like I could go further in my unapologeticness. And I know a lot of people had that same reaction, but did that go into our music? I don't I mean, think so. I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I think, let me, well, it, let me, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. No, 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 just real, real quick. Like, I think part of it, part of it has to do with circumstances, like with the unrelenting blitz of things that were hitting people in the 1980s, it was almost impossible not to talk about these things. So yeah. Toddy D has that song, Bataram. Uh, Toddy D from out there uh, in Los Angeles, Bataram. Like, like, so we have the police, like that's, that's a song, that's an anthem, that's, that's everything. But dudes on the street, we're hearing that Bataram song uh, and understanding what precisely it meant for the police to be militarized, like what yeah. what that meant, like and 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 so they were singing these kinds of songs. That was a political song. I don't know if he meant it that way, but he's talking about the mayor. He's talking about the chief of police. These are elected positions. These are these are appointed positions, and so in my mind, that's that's political political speak. I'm not sure, uh, you know, if it's fair you know, to compare this moment to that moment, because I think uh, there's been a lot of indi individualization happening in between the 1980s. It's hard to believe this, uh, Jerry, bro, but that was like, you know, uh, you know, 35, 40 years ago, you know, uh, a lot of individualization happening in between this moment and that, so. Time for a quick break. We'll be right back. Yeah, you know, I was gonna say, in terms of like I, you know, I look, I'm I'm 43, so I grew up basically in the the 90s era hip hop is, you know, the 80s, late 80s, 90s era hip hop is where is my sweet spot, and I do think obviously a lot of that music was more political and definitely spoke more to the situations and in you know even you know even going back you know when when Prodigy from Mob Deep passed away, you go back and listen to like the infamous you his verses specifically like. There's a lot of talking about pain. It's not just pure nihilism. Like there's a lot of, you know, when you read between the lines on these things, I do think nowadays, this is probably why artists like Kendrick get elevated so much because it's not just strictly money or th this idea of money and capitalism. Like he's trying to use his platform to speak on different types of things. And I, what I think is there's a lot of artists that attempt to do that. It's just like with every commercial you know commercial hip-hop argument that stuff doesn't really rot you have to look harder to find it if you're looking for it they're like and and i i hate to say this this is gonna sound jacked up but a lot of that stuff just ain't as good now like back then because hip-hop was so new and revolutionary the people making it like the bomb squad you know america's most wanted is as political a record as you're ever gonna get right i mean you know like it, it includes I, I remember when i when i first heard the term like these records taught me about LA. I knew nothing about Los Angeles, right? But even words like ghetto bird, like I never knew what that meant. I didn't realize they were talking about the helicopters, the LAPD helicopters circling around and stuff like that. You know, right. so I do I do take your point about the what seems like the lack of that happening now. But you know, the people like Killer Mike, the run the jewels of the world, they still they're still out there. They might not have as big hey. of a platform. But you know, everybody loves Killer Mike, right? Killer Mike was on CNN for a while, right? Like he he was able to move whoa, into a space whoa, where the hip hop artists were having, having a voice. Would you say? I wouldn't go so far to say everybody loves Killer Mike. 
Okay. Hey, listen, you, live you know what? Enough, you live long enough to be the villain. Like Killer so, Mike has uh, a lot yeah. more fans than you would be surprised. That he has, he has a lot more fans than I think would be expected of an artist who's who kind of lives in the truth telling, whether you believe it or not, truth telling realm, so to speak. Like okay. Run the Jewels is a pretty popular act. You know what I mean? Killer okay. Mike had TV shows. Like Killer Mike. So that's what I mean. Against. Yeah. He has a bigger platform than I think you would expect for what, for what you would deem a political rapper nowadays. The thing, the, thing, the thing that jumps out at me, because I always ask this question of D.C. folks, because every area that has a significant number of black people has had a hip hop uh, community or a hip hop output. Right. There's rappers from. Oh, there's there's so many black people in D.C. And there's this vibrant crime scene. And there's this vibrant music scene. And a vibrant basketball scene. DC is critical, PG in general, it's critical to the bat. So you're doing all these other things that every major, but but there's no significant DC born rapper scene. And I don't understand why that did not develop. Yeah, I mean that's that's the age old question. I'm not born and raised in DC. I've been here. I've been here. This is the place I've lived longest in my life, and that's a constant argument even on the ground, right? You know, that's why artists like Wale would fight for like right. I'm putting DC up. Like people aren't appreciating that how much work I've done to put DC on the map. But I that's people always talk about the go-go influence. Like you know the 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 go-go influence in DC reigns supreme here, and that's a very localized. You know, it's a very, though it should be more appreciated by the black diaspora, so to speak, because it's the most percussion heavy, you know, we love us good drums, right? It's a, it's a percussion heavy music, but go-go seems to be the, 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 the art form that even now seems to dominate the city's discourse, even though I think the de-regionalization of hip hop also has a big impact on that. Cause I mean, everybody sounds the exact same shy glizzy. Yeah popular artists here sounds just like anybody from new orleans or new york or anywhere now right like there's everybody looks like lil wayne and everybody sounds like <laughs> like too we're definitely de-regionalized and i don't say it to to dunk on dc i'm sort of like where's where's my dc hip-hop i feel like we have missed out on something um and people always talk about well go go sort of eclipsed any potential hip-hop scene i just don't understand why there's not some people. You don't even need to have your own unique sound. Yeah, like you said, it's de it's deregionalized now. But just the guys coming out, you know, a rapper named Rayful, right? He's like winking at that old stuff. Like you would think it would be something by now. Yeah, we're gonna take one more quick break here, and then we're gonna come back, and I want to talk a little bit more about uh, kind of hip hop and academia. And then we're going to get to some black fashions and black accommodations. So stay tuned here on Dear Culture. The Griot Black Podcast Network is here. Everything you've been waiting for. Black culture amplified. Find your voice on the Black Podcast Network. Listen today on the Griot mobile app and tune in everywhere great podcasts are heard. We're back here on Dear Culture, and I'm still joined by Teray and Stephen Bradley, who was a professor at Amherst College, who taught a class called Rap, Reagan, and the 1980s. And, you know, I, 
let me just ask this. We've we've been talking about the eighties and hip hop and all this stuff like that. And you look, listen, hip hop literally has covered the gamut of everything you could possibly talk about in a culturally anthropological way, right? Like hip hop takes all of that and literally synthesizes it out in some way, shape, or form. But I know, I mean, more recently you get tons of classes using hip hop as a center focus to to teach larger lessons. I mean, I don't think but in maybe a few places, hip hop studies is a, a real thing yet, like as a as a as a concentration. I don't want to be wrong about that. You would know better than I would. But like, why do you think it's been so difficult to really get hip hop to break into the anthropological space in an academic university setting? Well, we, there's a program at Harvard that uh, I believe uh, Marcy Morgan. Is that am I getting am I remember the sister's name right? Marcelina Morgan runs. Um, and she has a beautiful museum with lots of artifacts, and they talk about hip hop in a very deep way there. I know about they that do at Duke as well. Duke University has stuff, yeah. you know, like there's classes, yeah. but I and 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 but why isn't this universal at this point? I mean, we're talking fifty years of hip hop, and I don't know if any other art form has been as hard hitting in the progression of the human condition since it got here as as hip hop, which documents all of it, like. Why is that, yeah. you know, maybe I'm underselling it. Maybe it's more prevalent than I, I just know, know I, but. You're right on point. Like what you're talking about, what you're talking about is, is the idea of, of what gets to be art. So this was, this was the big controversy of the 1980s. Like is hip hop considered music? Is hip hop considered uh, an art form? What's, what's valuable in the institution, in the academy? Like what, what's worthy of study has always has always neglected black people. And so when we're talking about this current uh, current issue over AP courses dealing with uh, African-American studies, it's the same thing that goes on with why hip hop is not pervasive as a, as a, as a form of understanding uh, the 1980s, you know, 1990s uh, and so forth. Uh, people had a hard time coming to terms with the idea that, that these people who didn't have jobs, these people who who created their own names, these people who dressed their, you know, the way they wanted to in unconventional ways, what they called it, uh, these people who talked about crime, uh, that these people actually knew something and could comment and critique American society. Uh, because, you know, oftentimes in the academy, uh, people who wear uh, ties like me and spectacles, uh, uh, we're the ones that get to do all the critiquing, they get to do all of the, all of the assessing and evaluation of American society. When in fact, when in fact, uh, these young people, these young people from the 1980s and onward, uh, were able to tell us about American society, to tell us what are the effects of deindustrialization? What are the effects of, 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 uh, there being no economy? So we create an economy out of, out of crack. Uh, uh, what are the effects of you take away uh, after school programs and so we'll just build gangs. Uh, you, you won't let us in the in the Boy Scouts. So we'll, we'll, we'll make our own kind of Boy Scouts. And so so I think in that way, the very same thing that is blocking critical race theory, that's blocking uh, uh, African-American studies in the AP courses uh, is the same thing that's kept uh, hip hop out of uh, the academy for this long. Yeah, I've always been just, it's such a fascinating, you know, it's, it's such a fascinating discussion to me because, I mean, hip hop is very regional, right? Like every, like what, what comes out of Houston 
doesn't sound like what comes out of New York. Cause without your boys, I might have to tell you something good. There's a different sound of music yeah, and it speaks directly yeah. to the streets, right? Like the way that you listen to music in LA because it's a car culture is entirely different than the way you listen to music in New York, right? Or even in Atlanta, yeah. like, you know, in, in, in the South, the way that like you can visualize, I understand outcast innately because that's the, that's the space I came from, but I get how the sound really captured what it was like on the ground. And the music videos took that to a whole new level. I mean, most of us only learned about these places because of the videos that were coming out through the music, right? Like I didn't know anything about Cleveland until Bone hit the scene. And all of a sudden I'm looking around like, wow, that looks a lot like what it looked like in LA, but there's a different, there's a difference to it. Right. So I'm just always, it seems like such a ripe area for study in almost every single capacity, right? Like just, just understanding. And I, and I love that we've, you know, like Tupac is worthy of discussion, right? Like I understand why there's so many classes about Tupac. He's a fascinating human being, you know, but it just seems like the culture at large at this point should be completely open for discussion in almost every single capacity. And sure. I just don't feel like I've seen that yet, but I'm hoping it's getting there because you know, the obvious, it's, it seems so obvious to me, but, but America doesn't you know. listen to black youth. Like, like that's not a thing. Like, like, so black youth, uh, there's a picture of Trayvon Martin behind me. Young people came out after Trayvon Martin was killed. Like, like they tried to tell America what it was like, that you got to stop doing ish like this. Like you've got to stop with this. America doesn't listen to black youth. And so, so you're wondering why it hasn't made it this far and 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 isn't pervasive uh it's 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 because of the age-old thing that that uh uh everybody seems to know what's best for america without checking for the people who are most affected by america fair enough fair enough time for a quick break we'll be right back we're going to transition into two of my favorite segments here that we do at dear culture um and they are black fashions and black recommendations. So what I want to thank you for this conversation. It's been great. Like I genuinely enjoy any conversation about how important hip hop is and how important. And, and I love the fact that you teach a class about the eighties and hip hop in the eighties and, and, and Reagan. We didn't touch much on Reagan, but bad guy. Let's just go that route. <laughs> um, but I want to ask you all if you have any black fashions this is our segment of the show we allow where we we dig into the whole black people are not a monolith bag right we love to say it but what does it actually mean um so we ask our guests to provide a black fashion which is a confession of something that people might be surprised to find out about you because you're black so you're our, our vaunted guest here stefan do you have a black fashion uh, yeah, I probably have one or two. Uh, one is, and I hate to admit it, uh, this is going national and international, but I don't, I don't play bidwiz. I don't know how to play bidwiz. It looks real confusing to me. Uh, and so I, I hate to admit it out loud. Uh, the other thing is, and you know, my mom is from Mississippi, my boss from Florida. Uh, but I don't necessarily need cornbread. I don't, I don't need. Oh, uh, now that's a black fashion. Bidwist? That's a black fashion. I meal and I don't necessarily need wow. it. Uh, you, you haven't had to break cornbread then. <laughs> that might be it. Well, I mean, it. listen. It takes up so when much space. When you open up with Bidwist. Like, there's a lot of work to do but, on a plate. I mean, you know, you know, you know, 
it's cool, you know. I don't I don't mess with mac and cheese. I don't like it. I don't like the look of it, you know. It, it you know, I apparently that's a staple. I I I can't do it. It can't it, it don't it don't look right and I'm not I'm not putting all that in my mouth. Wait, um, hold but on. also uh it's all right. You went to you went to college in Atlanta, right? That, you went to you went to, went to Emory, right? I so did, did. you spent time in in Southern Stomping Grounds. You didn't find any mac and cheese. Like you didn't make it to the to well, to the southwest side of the city to to the soul food spots. Pascal. I, I mean, I I wasn't looking for it. I ate I ate a lot of good soul food. My grandmother was from Alabama. Would make an extraordinary uh spread every thanksgiving the gravy is unforgettable the biscuits were unforgettable um you know i i, I the gloop and the sound of mac and cheese turned me <laughs> off from the beginning it's a very sonic food and just 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 scooping it out of the thing i'm like no i'm good i'm good and 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 i would eat a tub of her mashed potatoes I would eat a tub of good mashed potatoes by anybody, and that also makes a sound, but not quite the mac and cheese sound. Um, so I can't, I can't, I can't with the mac and cheese. Um, and my kids love mac and cheese. I have not stopped them from enjoying the mac and cheese. Um, I'm also not eating no grits. It's not happening, you know. And greens, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. But I'm a very picky eater. It's terrible, it's terrible. Um, but the other thing that I would say, um, I love Alba. And it's probably the whitest group ever, but they made hit after hit after hit, and they're well-written, well-constructed songs. Sometimes they're disco songs, and I'm like, that you know, they 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 slap. I love them. Abba okay. slap. Abba, Abba well, slap should be. Uh... I don't care. I don't play it at yeah, the party is... when people come over, but you know, when they after they leave, I might throw it on. Well, I love it. I listen, Stefan, when you said Bidwist, most people probably can't play Bidwist. I know tons of people who know nothing about no Bidwist. But Man. you are absolutely right about the, the, the cornbread I was caught off guard on. When you said Bidwist, well, I'm like, my man don't have nothing. But the no, cornbread I'm a small man. Look, so I, I, I need to make efficient use of a plate. And so that bread just takes up a lot of space. Like You're they, killing me, man. You're killing yeah. me. Yeah. Right. Well, to un to to bring it full circle, let's one eighty on this. We also ask people to provide a black recommendation, which is a recommendation about something by for and about black culture, blackness that you are interested in that you're doing, whatever. Something that you think other people should be checking out that represents the culture in some way, shape, or form. Teray, do you have a black recommendation? Yo, there's a show on HBO that nobody really talks about. And this is one of the blackest shows I have ever seen in my life. It's called Random Acts of Blindness. Which are you, pirate or king? And just, it's, it's more of a magical realist sort of anthology of stories rather than, you know, like, it's this character who wants this and trying to get that and blah, 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 or the story of this boy and girl. And it's nothing like that. But it's just it, it, in the first scene, a boy is riding his bike and he gets stopped by this white cop. And then in the course of their argument, he just starts to fly off into the air. 
And the cop, like, he's, like, rising like a balloon. And the cop is like, where are you going? And he just flies away from the cop. And I'm like, yes! I love that! I need that! And, like, nobody talks about this show. The second season came out a little while ago. It was not nearly as strong as the first season. I love this show, and I wish uh, more folks would uh, dig into it. Definitely a fan of that show. Shout out to the homie Terrence Nance for uh right great great show. It's an it's an insane it's it's a it's a it's a walk through somebody's mind. And it yeah. uh you know, you kinda gotta pay you gotta watch it a couple times to get some of the stuff, but when you do, you're yeah. like, This is this is amazing. So I'm with you hundred percent. Hundred percent. All right, Stefan, what about you? Yeah, um, you know, you all are hella creative, uh, and that's that's very good. Like, you have good minds for these things. Uh, along those lines, I would say there's there was, a in the 70s, a series uh, called Soul. Uh, mm. It was so, so good. Like, it would invite uh, various artists from the period, various intellectuals from the period to come on the show. You'll have Nikki Giovanni, and you'll have Al Green in the same space, and and uh, they'll be singing and they'll be talking and they'll, they'll be, you know, people reciting uh, lyrics, poetry, uh, and also interviewed about the contemporary moment. So uh, Chester Himes and all these kinds of people would be on there. It was, it was super cool. It didn't last for like more than a season, I think. But I think you can find it uh, on the Internet and on the interweb somewhere. But also what I'm doing this month is I'm... Uh, I'm listening to uh, uh, the speeches of, of John Henry Clark, uh, uh, Malcolm's teachers, uh, Malcolm's teacher, and and you know somebody that was able to to, to share the history uh, without having to do so at a university or a college. Uh, he was the people's historian in a lot of ways, and so I, you know, if I was suggesting anything, is for people to get down on John Henry Clark, uh, uh, one of the greatest greatest minds uh, uh, of this earlier period. Beautiful. All right. Sounds good. Well, uh, I want to thank you both for joining me here. Uh, Stefan, tell people where they can find you if you want to be found. <laughs> for all the good reasons. Look, for all the good reasons. I'm on Twitter at, uh, at Prop S. Bradley. Uh, you can catch me there. And uh, uh, like I said, come through, take a class. Whenever you all are in Western Mass, you're more than welcome to, to, to come through and we'll make a star out of it. Yeah. You still on Twitter? That's all right. I, yeah, no, I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> my wife, my wife, the other day, like, why are you still on Twitter? I'm like, oh, it's a habit at this point. I'm about to say, uh, you famously, you, you, you got to be on Twitter. That's where, that's where you argue with people and get all these amazing takes off. I'm saying, yo, um, yeah, I'm on Twitter at Torre. I'm on Instagram at Torre Show, and I got a podcast coming out in a couple months called Being Black in the '80s on the Grio Black Podcast Network, where, as you talk about. We take songs from the 80s and talk about the political and sociopolitical implications of them and the history of the song and the history of the issues that the song is talking about. And I'm really proud of it. And I can't wait for you guys to hear it. All right. Sounds good. Well, I want to thank you, Teray, and thank you, Stefan, for joining us for this conversation about the 80s and hip hop and crack. First conversation about crack that we've had on Dear Culture. So... You know, a wonderful way to bring in <laughs> in 2023. Uh, thank you both for being here. I am the host, Panama Jackson. Have a black one. If you like what you heard, be sure to download the Griot's app to hear more episodes of Dear Culture and more original content from the Griot Black Podcast Network. 
please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcast at thegrio.com. Dear Culture is an original production brought to you by the Grio Black Podcast Network.